Take your Bibles, if you have them with you, turn to 1 Corinthians. We began a study there with the students uh, this past Wednesday night, and it just felt like uh, through the Lord's leading, we would stay there uh, for today as well. So uh, we'll kind of continue that study with the youth group, but get to do it with everybody today, so it'll be fun. It's always an honor to get to to share uh, God's Word uh, for the whole congregation. So, College football is back. Y'all are a little bit more awake than the first group. Uh, for some of us, uh, or, well, my team hasn't played yet, so I can't say anything, but uh, some, it was a weekend of great joy. Uh, others, we won't talk about. Uh, a little bit of a rough start for some teams, but that's okay. But I, I was thinking about it yesterday. Is there another job in the world that is second-guessed as much as an SEC football coach? I mean, if you think about it, I don't have 100,000 people coming uh, to critique, you know, how I'm doing my job every Saturday, um, you know, and, you know, they're not talking about what player you put in or what play you called this one time or how you managed even the clock there in the final couple of minutes or all these things. And then going and having a whole message board with an anonymous name uh, just blasting you, you know, about how poorly you did your job that one time uh, because of the one thing, how foolish you were uh, at doing that. You know, that's not the, the pressures of the job that I have. Maybe some of you do, uh, but that's not it. Not here. But an SEC football coach has a lot of people that like to talk about how foolish some of the decisions were that he made. Well, the text that we're going to cover today, uh, we're actually going to look at a couple of groups of people who think that God choosing to save people through the cross was extreme foolishness. They, they can't wrap their mind around the fact, and, the, and so they don't believe it, that he saves through Jesus' death on the cross. And so what I want us to look at is a, a section of, of Scripture that, that allows us to see that that's the only way of salvation. That that's the way that, that God chose and there is no other way. And it's not foolishness, but it's glorious. So if you will, I know you just sat down, but if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll start in verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. This is what the word of the Lord says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called with Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. What a glorious word that it is that we get to know Christ crucified. Lord, I pray for our time together here that as we dive into to this, that our hearts will be pierced, that we will long to, to give our lives to you as, as Lord and Savior, Lord, but also that we will seek after you, seek after wisdom that only comes from you. Because, Lord, you are worthy of everything that we have all of our life. So, Lord, I pray that this time together will impact our hearts, our minds, and our lives. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So in that passage of Scripture, we really talked about two groups of people that really see the cross as foolishness. But they see it as foolishness for a couple of different reasons. And so what I want us to do is I want us to actually start and realize that the, the cross is folly for those who are perishing. And I want us to look at those misconceptions first, and then I want us to get to what the the cross really is, which that is the power for those who are saved. So the first misconception, or let's let's talk about this. The cross is foolishness for those who are perishing. I know when you're in the following Jesus Path seminar that you're learning what the word perishing is for the, the kids that are learning what it is. But perishing is the, the, those who are dying separated from Christ. You think about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so for people who do not understand the, the cross as the way of salvation, they are perishing. They don't have the, the salvation in their heart. They don't have Christ as, as Lord of their lives. And, and we start off with these two groups, and the first group being the Jewish people. They had some misconceptions that they could not break down the, the, the gloriousness of the cross. Instead, they saw it as foolishness. So their first misconception of the Jews was the Jews were looking for a Messiah, but they were expecting a king. They were looking for a Messiah, but they were expecting a king. They missed the fact that God was preparing Christ from of old. You know, it took me a really long time in in my younger years, and I grew up in church, to realize that the Bible is all one story. The Bible is all leading to Jesus. The Genesis, the Old Testament leads to him, Revelation, everything looks back at him. But we realize that it's one giant story, not 66 different books. It all points to him. And see, the the Jewish people have misunderstood the Old Testament in a lot of ways, even though the truths of Jesus' coming were right there in black and white for them. It was right there that they could see that Jesus was going to come. But they couldn't wrap their mind of a king coming in a manger, could they? They couldn't wrap their mind around the fact that, that he was going to come from humble beginnings. They were expecting a king that was going to come, that was going to overthrow the Roman government, that was going to show his power, that was going to bring Israel back up to prominence. 
and they had this misconception of who Jesus was supposed to be, and so they couldn't see the truth of the cross because of it. And so they were confused, and they, they missed it. But they also couldn't see that, that Jesus was going to come out of Nazareth even. You look at Jesus is calling one of the disciples in John 1, 46. He said, the, the disciple responds to him, you know, what good comes out of Nazareth? They had this misconception. They had missed the Old Testament narrative that brings Jesus, helps us to see who he is. But then also flip over to Galatians chapter 3 for just a second. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. For another misconception that they had. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. They had a difficult time thinking of a Messiah that would go to a cross and be crucified. Even though the scriptures were telling them, Look, he's going to be crucified. He's going to take our curse. He's going to pay that price for us so that we don't have to pay the ultimate price for our sins. So as they were reading their their Torah, these really religious people, these people who knew the Old Testament front and back, brought their own worldview to it and completely missed the glory of the cross and called it foolishness. They couldn't imagine the Messiah being crucified because they were looking for a king. But there's a second problem that they had as well. The Jews asked Jesus to show them signs even after he had given them signs of his lordship. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greek seek wisdom. Greek seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. Guys, we can be really bad at picking up on signs every now and then, can't we? Especially if you're married. Has any married men ever missed a sign that your wife's given you, or is that just me? I think it's happened to most of us, right? Uh, one example that I could think of in particular, um, you know, it was really discreet. It was not my fault at all that I missed it. But Shannon told me, this was back when we first got married, uh, that if I hadn't picked out something for her for Christmas yet, that she had an idea for me. And so you could, I could buy her this ring if I hadn't gotten her something yet. And so to kind of help me in that, she went to the store, had the ring picked out that she wanted, uh, got one of the cards with the ring on it, uh, went ahead, got her finger sized, uh, and then gave me this card with the ring and the sizing and all that kind of stuff and said, if you have not picked something out for me for Christmas, then here is an idea that you could possibly get me. Needless to say, I would not be telling this story to this point if I really got the sign and got her that ring at that point, right? I missed it completely. I don't remember what I got her for that Christmas. Um, She tends to remind me that I didn't get her that ring. Uh, But I got her something else, and then a couple of years later, finally, you know, realized, hey, I probably should actually do that, you know, or something similar to it uh, since she'd been asking for it. But the signs were really, really obvious, was it not? I mean, you're sitting there laughing at me because I missed this obvious sign of what I should have gotten my wife for Christmas. But here's the interesting thing about this passage of Scripture and about the the Gospels. 
the Jews were missing just as obvious of signs as that story. The Jews were just completely missing out. The Sadducees and the Pharisees had no clue that Jesus was God, but they keep coming to him and asking him for signs. If you looked at Mark chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, they're like, hey, Jesus, we need a sign from you. All right, well, take that out of context, and it sounds like they're genuinely seeking, right? Hey, we really need a sign from you. We want to know that you're the Messiah. We want to know that you're Lord. Can you show us that in some way? That makes sense. That's awesome, right? Except for you missed the fact that in earlier, like in the first 10 verses of Mark chapter 8, do you know what Jesus just did? He just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a few fish. That sounds like a pretty good sign to me, that he might have some lordship. He might have some Messiah qualities, that he is revealing himself to these people, that he's feeding them physically, but he's also going to feed them spiritually. That's a huge sign. And they're sitting there going, hey, Jesus, we need a sign. Are you Lord? Are you Messiah? Can you give us a sign? And it's like, wait a minute. I just fed 4,000 people. How did Jesus not just laugh at them? You know? But then it's not the only time that they do it. You look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. They come up to him again. Hey, Jesus, we need a sign. We need a sign, Jesus. Can you show us that you're Lord? Can you show us that you're the Messiah? Please, Jesus, show us. But here's the interesting thing about that text. Just before in that Jesus was in the synagogue, which is where the Sadducees and the Pharisees would have hung out most of the time. And he healed a man with a withered hand right there in front of him. I don't know about you, but that is a pretty incredible sign of who Jesus is, isn't it? And yet here they are with their hardened hearts coming and saying, Jesus, we need a sign. Jesus, we need a sign. But they were missing the signs that were right there before them. They were missing him revealing his lordship even though he was doing it as he was walking and going and healing and preaching and these Jewish people who were seeing all this were missing it but here's the glorious thing for us we don't have to seek don't have to look for signs to have faith in Christ for we have the testimony of the resurrection to know he is reigning We have this whole book. We have the Gospels. We are able to see the life that he lived, the miracles that he did, and we get to see the greatest miracle of all, and that's Jesus resurrecting from the dead. And we know it to be true. We don't have to seek after signs. We don't have to look for them. He's still doing them. He's still living and active in the world today. He's still healing people. He's still bringing people salvation all over the world, even in areas where you don't think it would be possible. Even in areas where the church is being persecuted, it is thriving. And God is doing some amazing things. But we can look at the resurrection and we know that he is who he says that he is. We can look at the impact that he's had in our own lives, the testimony that we have of how he's changed us how he's made us new. And we know that he is real. So we can trust in his word and we can trust in who he is. So the Jewish people really had two misconceptions about who Jesus was going to be. And it impacted the way that they responded. The amazing thing is that God still calls some of them out of that religion. But there's another group of people as well. 
The second group of people are the Gentiles. You read it right there in verse 22. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The Gentiles and the Greeks, they're using that interchangeably there because he's writing to the church at Corinth, which is a Greek city. But the Greeks were very, very proud in their culture and their knowledge. They were seeking this special knowledge, this wisdom that they thought that could bring them salvation or, or that they could just be philosophical and that they would be okay. And so they would sit there and, you know, we've gone through Acts. You're in Acts chapter 17, you know, back a few months ago. And, and they'd sit there at Mars Hill and they were so proud that they'd get to sit there and talk and, and work through the philosophy and work through the, the, the wisdom of the age. And they were able to be sponsored and didn't have to do all this hard work. And they took great pride in that and they had special knowledge that puffed them up. But the idea of the cross would be foolishness to them. The idea that God would become man and then that he would suffer and die on the cross would not make sense in most of their worldview. In most of their mindsets, it just would not happen that they could wrap their mind around it. But yet God called some out of there as well. And so these texts are warning us to to not get puffed up with the special knowledge, not to, to discount the wisdom of God because of the wisdom of the world. It's true that we have to be mindful of these things. Because I'll tell you, I don't think the world is that different today than it was for the Jews and the Greeks. I think there's people in the world today that are very much like the Jews that, oh, Jesus would not have done that. Oh, the Messiah, the Christ, he's not really going to suffer and die. Or all you have to do is have special knowledge and, and you can get to heaven. Or really, even the thought that if you believe in that Jesus, then you're just following after myths and fairy tales. We were watching a video uh, before staff meeting started uh, the other day. And uh, just a little cartoon, little funny thing. Um, and it had Richard Dawkins in it. Um, he's a renowned atheist. Uh, and just in that, he's talking to two Irish guys, and, and they're going back and forth, and the Irish guys are trying to explain to him the, the power of the resurrection and, and how it's true and trustworthy. But over and over again, Richard Dawkins is just sitting there going, oh, that's myths, that's fairy tales, you can't believe that. How can you actually believe that? And, and he's just sitting there going, how foolish it must be to believe in the cross. So, the truth is, the cross seems like foolishness to many in our world today. But it doesn't mean that we're fools. It doesn't mean that we should be fools. The truth is that the Word of God stands up to any test. The truth is that the testimony of Jesus Christ stands up to any accusation against it, that it, we can hold on to it, that we know that it's true. That here, Here's the thing. When we become Christians, we don't have to check our brain at the door. We can actually be intellectual in it as well. Our faith is with our hearts and with our minds and our soul. It's every part of our being. It's giving our lives as lordship. But we can actually be intellectual. We can actually think through it. We can actually read the word of God and apply it to our lives and, and understand theology. 
The sad thing is, you know, we talked about the atheist earlier. A lot of atheists have spent more time reading this than people who have spent their entire lives in the church. They know more about the Word of God than many of us who have been here for our entire life. And that shouldn't be the case. We should have a desire for wisdom that comes from God. We should have a, a, a heart to, to seek after it, to, to be engaged in it. Look at Proverbs chapter 2 with me for a second. Proverbs chapter 2. It's a long passage here, but I want, to, I want to read it so that we understand it. It says this. Proverbs chapter 2, starting verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in their perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Do you hear the challenge there to seek wisdom? The challenge there to how that will impact even the way that we live our morals as we're seeking the wisdom there. The truth is that we as believers need to understand our faith in such a way that we can articulate it to those who are antagonistic towards our faith. We need to be able to tell people why we believe what we believe. We went to watch Insanity of God on Tuesday night. Uh, Incredible movie. Definitely encourage you to go see it. But they throw out a very interesting stat uh, towards the end of the movie. He said nine out of ten people that are born in the church, raised in the church, married in the church, and then buried in the church, never share their faith with anyone. Nine out of ten people. I don't know about you, but my prayer is that that's not our church. My prayer is that that's not our congregation, but that our congregation is passionate because we say that this is treasure. We say that this is the the greatest gift is the salvation of God, that the cross is our way of salvation. And so my prayer is that we are able to tell people about it, that we're able to, to understand it and that we're able to work through it. And then that we go and share it. That it challenges us to evangelize. That it's not just this head knowledge that has no application, but that it's something that impacts our life. You look at a lot of common media and there's these misconceptions about what Christians are. You watch SNL and they love to make fun of Christians. 
But we can be intellectual in our faith. We can have an understanding. We can defend it. It does stand the test of time. Here's the interesting thing. We have been, as Christians, on the forefront of so many great educational advances. The printing press. If you think about it, wherever missions go, literacy actually goes up in that area. Do you know why it goes up? Because they want to read the Word of God. But so often we take it for granted. So often we miss out on the value that is here and we just settle and don't pursue the wisdom that we're talking about. I know that many of you have jobs that require many hours of work each week. I understand that. I know that students... Y'all have class, and then homework, and then clubs, and then sports, and then band. And then parents, I know that you're following them in all those things. But if we're saying that the Word of God is important, if we're saying that it matters for eternity, if we're saying that, that we love the Lord and we want to know Him, want the wisdom that comes from Him, then we have to start spending more time reading his word. We have to start spending more time reading things that are going to help us to understand his word better. Things in theology, books in theology, books in church history even, to to understand true belief and how we got to where we are, even studying other cultures so that we don't offend them as we seek to share the gospel with them. The gospel is offensive enough. It is a stumbling block for the Jews and folly for the Gentiles. It's one of those roadblocks that that Pastor Wade was talking about last week. But if we're reading and learning and growing in our faith, growing in our wisdom, then we can even be more effective in sharing the gospel with people. The Holy Spirit is the one that saves, but we can be doing our part to be prepared for those conversations and to be sure that we're not one of the nine out of ten who never shares their faith with somebody. But there's another thing that we need to note when we're talking about pursuing wisdom that comes from God. We need to be equipping our children for the questions they will face one day. Your students are going to face people who think that the cross is folly. Your students are going to face people who think that it's foolishness. But are we helping them to answer that question? Are we training them up? Are we helping them to think through some of these attacks that are coming on their faith? Are we working through apologetics? Are we there to answer those questions when they have those questions? Are we preparing them before they ever get there? Because I'm going to tell you that if your student is a 7th grader, your student is a 12th grader, or even if your student's younger than that, they're going to face those questions one day. If they're not already facing it, 
They're going, to, since they're going to get it in their schools from their teachers. They're going to get it in their schools from their classmates. They're going to get it from their ball teams and from their band and all of those things. They're going to have these questions and these people who are going to tell them the cross is foolishness. But I'm telling you today, the cross is not foolishness. The cross is the glory of the Lord and it is trustworthy and we can actually defend it. We can think through it. We can know the reason that we believe what we believe. And so we as parents need to be equipping them for what they're going to face in the world. We can't protect them all the time. But we can help them to understand their faith and to be able to articulate it to those who may be against it. So we have to be equipping our children. It's much more than Sundays. It's much more than Wednesdays. Those are great. I hope that you're involved in a connect group so you're growing in that. I hope that your kids are involved in our connect group so that they're growing in that. But it has to be something in our lifestyles. It has to be something that we as families are talking about as we sit, as we go out. I keep seeing over and over again in my studies of student ministry that the car is the new kitchen table. Because so many people are just constantly riding from one place to the next. And so we're missing out on that, that meal together. I encourage you to have that meal together. But I also encourage you, when you have them trapped in the car, talk about things more important than just football or school. But be about equipping them so that we can send them out. There is a wisdom that comes from God. And it is good and it is true and it is trustworthy. So I pray that we are seeking after that like Proverbs 2 is encouraging us to do. But there's a second half of the verse 18 that we we started off with that I want us to look at. Look back at verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness. Hold on, I lost my spot. Here we go. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Look at verse 24 as well. But to those who are called, so called to salvation, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the cross is power for those who are saved. It is the only way of salvation. It is the only way that Christ has made a way for us. And so I think we need to first realize what it means to be saved. It is recognizing your need for a Savior and trusting Jesus as Lord in your life. Is realizing that every single one of us have sinned. Every single one of us falls short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. No, not one. It says our righteousness is like filthy rags. And that's the state that we're in. We are in that group of those who are perishing. But God in his mercy has made a way. Christ has paid the price for us. If you look... It talks about Christ in verse 30. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 
we have to realize that he paid the price so that we can enter into that relationship. That is what redemption is. We also have to realize that he is the righteous one, but yet he's given us that righteousness if we trust in him as our Lord and Savior. And so we're saved at that moment, but then after that there is time of sanctification that's a process that goes on and on till the day that we die, making us more and more like Christ. And so we see all of that in these verses of redemption, righteousness, sanctification. And so we need to trust in Christ as our Lord. We need to believe in Him and submit our lives to Him. His ways are good. And He is the only way to salvation. But there is more encouragement in those verses as well. Look at verses 26 through 31. It says this, For consider your calling, brothers. All right, so he's talking directly to the church. He says, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. There's a good bit of encouragement this morning, right? That's, that's what you hope somebody's to write to, to our church. Not many of you were wise. Uh, not many of you were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So you read those verses right there, and what that's telling us is that it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter if this is your first time to hear the gospel and you received it and and, and asked Christ to be Lord and Savior of your life. God wants to use you. It doesn't matter if your life has been a life of rebellion, a life of sin. If if you have one of those stories that, that you could go on and on about all the mistakes that you've made, about all the times you were selfish, all the times, just all the sin in your life. God still wants to use you. You're not too far for his grace. His grace is sufficient. And so you can come to Christ today no matter what your background is. He's calling you. He longs to save you. Look at who he used throughout the Bible. All right, he used fishermen. You know, that was their profession, not very highly thought of. He used tax collectors, they were hated. I mean, the Jewish people hated the tax collectors. And yet, one of them was one of his disciples. Think about who wrote this book. This book of the, of the New Testament that we're reading right now. 1 Corinthians. Who wrote it? The Apostle Paul, right? What was he doing before he became the Apostle Paul? Persecuting the church. Killing followers of Christ. And yet, with a background like that, God still chose to use him to write the 13 letters. Yet with that background, God still chose him to go and plant churches all over the the biblical known world at that time. And yet God still chose him to encourage and spur these churches on to disciple others. Even go back to the Old Testament. He used a prostitute to save the Jewish people, to save the Israelites. It doesn't matter the background God's grace is enough. He wants to save you and he wants to use you for his kingdom and for his glory. 
But the truth is, the cross leads to humility for all believers. That last verse there, verse 31, says, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, we talk about people with those kind of testimonies. But the truth is, all of us were far from God. The truth is, God's grace should bring humility into the life of all of us believers. Because we realize that we've done nothing to earn it. We've done nothing to deserve it. But it's all Him and His grace. And so, the point for today. In God's wisdom, He has given us the cross for salvation. It is trustworthy. And we should seek God's wisdom with diligence and humility. For some of you today, I firmly believe that in a group this size, there are people who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. My prayer is that you realize the wisdom of it and that you give your heart to the Lord. That you submit your life to Him. That you ask Him to be Lord and Savior. And we're going to give you an opportunity now to, to come forward and to help allow us to walk you through that. About what it means to be a follower of Christ. But for others today, some of us have been Christians for a long time. But we've really just been settling instead of seeking his wisdom. We've really just been kind of floating through instead of spending time in the word and and seeking to to know him more and seeking to, to understand even our faith and how that impacts our life. So maybe today, if you're somebody in there, you just need to to just put a stake in the ground and say, I want to follow Christ. I want to seek to know him more. I know it's hard. I know it takes time. But it can impact how you get to witness to people. It can impact how you get to equip your kids for the questions that they'll face one day. So don't just settle. Don't just float. Don't stay in cruise control. But seek to grow in His wisdom.